Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I'd like to thank Bambi for supporting my podcast. You know, HR manager salaries aren't cheap. $70,000 a year, but only Bambi gives you a dedicated HR manager for just 99 bucks a month. So you can get your free HR compliance audit by going to Bambi.com slash gold, spelled Bambi, B-A-M-B-E-E.com slash gold. Another strong day for stocks today. The Dow Jones up 240 points did not set a new record high, but the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq both hitting new all-time highs today. And that's despite what President Biden said last night in his State of the Union address, although we don't call it for some reason the State of the Union when it's your first address. But whatever the speech was called that he delivered last night should have scared stock market investors because he's talking about paying for a whole litany of new entitlements through higher taxes on corporations. But when you have a bubble like the one we have now, higher taxes may not be that big a deal because all higher taxes do is reduce earnings. And you know, a lot of companies don't even have any earnings. So they're not going to pay any taxes no matter how high they are because they have no earnings to tax. What really is important to this stock market is not what President Biden said last night, but what Fed Chairman Powell said yesterday afternoon. That's really what's causing the market to go up. It's the cheap money that's being supplied from the Fed. It's 0% interest rates that help to sustain these ridiculous stock market valuations. So investors care a lot more what Fed Chair Powell says than what President Biden said. I am going to talk about what both of these uh, individuals said yesterday later in the podcast. What I want to focus on before I get there is what happened in the markets today. And I want to talk in particular about some of the economic data that was released both today and yesterday. You know, first talking about the markets, even though the stock market was strong, it had some headwinds earlier in the day from a run-up in long-term interest rates. We had a spike in yields early this morning in reaction probably to the economic data. The stock market seemed to shrug it off, but not so the gold market. Gold prices tanked about $20 early this morning. Silver prices were down, I think, 40 or 50 cents. Those markets seem to be the most impacted, although other commodity prices continued to rise. Look at the price of oil up another dollar a barrel today or just over a dollar. I think it's settled at 64.94 up a dollar 8, although the intraday high was just under 65.50, but not just oil. Commodities across the board continue to move. One in particular that I've talked about on this program, lumber. Lumber prices up another 2.5% today. 
hitting a new all-time record high, lumber trading at 1,328.50 per 1,000 board foot. Now, I remember doing a podcast when lumber prices hit 1,000 a board foot, and that was a record. And now we're 30% higher than that. In fact, lumber prices from where they were last year are up fourfold. They've quadrupled in price in a year. Now, yes, you're comparing it to a very depressed level that existed briefly in March and April as we locked down from COVID and everything collapsed. But even if you look back to where lumber prices before anybody had even heard of COVID-19, if you look at where the price of lumber was then and compare it to it now, you're still looking at a triple in the price of lumber. So you can't look at that and say, well, it's all based on comparisons with these artificially low benchmarks because I'm ignoring that artificially low benchmark and just comparing the price of lumber today to where the lumber was before anybody heard of COVID. And the reality is there's no end in sight to this rally. As long as the Fed keeps printing money, and in fact, as long as the Fed keeps interest rates anchored at zero, which means mortgage rates stay low, housing demand is going to continue even in the face of rising lumber prices. So all that means is houses are going to be more expensive to build. Therefore, they're going to be more expensive to buy. That means people are going to have to take on even more debt, but prices are going to keep on going up. And a lot of the increase in commodity prices is, of course, what is driving the pickup in bond yields because the markets are still convinced, despite what Jerome Powell said yesterday, and again, I'll get into that in a bit, but despite what Powell is reassuring the markets, the markets still believe that the Fed is going to be forced to raise interest rates much sooner then it is telegraphing it will. And it is pricing those expectations into the gold and silver market because everybody on Wall Street believes that rising interest rates are bad for gold and bad for silver. And so they are selling gold and silver now in anticipation of higher interest rates later. But they're not selling other commodities for the same reason, because they're looking at other commodities and thinking that they're economically sensitive. And so they're thinking we've got this booming economy. So that's great for lumber. That's great for copper. That's great for all these other commodities. But it's not good for gold and silver because those are monetary metals. And so they're going to respond to the higher interest rates that the Fed is forced to impose to cool down this hot economy. So ironically, the the commodities that you would expect would benefit most from inflation, gold and silver, are the ones that are benefiting least. And of course, that is giving rise to all sorts of conspiracy theories as to why the price of gold and silver are not going up. Some people say it's manipulation. You've got uh, government or banks are manipulating the price of gold and silver after all. Why else wouldn't it be rising? There's all this money printing. There's you know huge budget deficits. The price of all these other commodities are going up. What would explain gold and silver not going up? It must be manipulation. Then you have the Bitcoin crowd saying, you see, we told you so. The reason the gold isn't going up is because no one cares about gold. Bitcoin stole its thunder. Bitcoin is the new gold. It's better than gold. And so why buy gold when you can buy Bitcoin? Neither of those explanations are true. The reality is this is the market. If the big money doesn't believe that inflation is a serious threat because they believe the Fed will be able to put out the fire before it really gets started. If they really think we have a booming economy, which is what everybody seems to think, and if they believe the Fed that inflation is going to stay anchored at 2%, and if it gets too much above 2%, well, they've got the tools to bring it back down. So if you really believe we've got this booming economy and we don't really have an inflation problem because the Fed is going to contain it, then this market action makes sense. But ultimately, the markets are going to prove investors wrong. They're wrong in believing that the Fed is going to be able to successfully fight inflation. In fact, I think they're wrong to believe that the Fed will even try to fight inflation. Inflation is going to win by default 
because the Fed is not even going to step into the ring. They're going to surrender. And so inflation wins without a fight. And ironically, too, under that scenario, bonds will be even weaker. Yields will rise even higher at the long end when the markets actually understand how much higher than 2% the inflation is likely to get. But that's when gold's going to go ballistic. And I don't know when that's going to happen, but I believe there's going to be a very big move in the price of gold and silver in a single day. And the only way to make sure you don't miss that day is to be invested before that day. And because we don't know when that day is, we need to be fully invested now. Recognize that what is happening is just noise and it is simply extending the buying opportunity for how much longer, nobody knows. So don't press your luck. Just get all the gold and silver that you want to get and just buy it now. You can buy physical if you're worried about third-party storage, if you're worried about having it with an ETF, take physical possession. Call up Shift Gold, go to our website, uh, you know, shiftgold.com and buy yourself some physical gold and silver. And if you really want to participate in the boom, get some exposure to the mining stocks because these things are going to deliver far greater returns if the price of gold does what I think than the metal itself. You have tremendous leverage to the upside and I think the upside risk is small relative to the the upside potential. So you have an asymmetric bet where it's really skewed in favor of how much you can make relative to the downside if you're wrong. So if you're a gambler, this is a smart bet to make. And I think the way to play it is with my gold fund so that you get diversification and you get professional management of your gold portfolio. And that's uh, Adrian Day, who is managing the Euro-Pacific Gold Fund. Now, some of the economic data that has come out over the past couple of days that should be moving the price of gold and silver higher, but have not as of yet, are number one, the record merchandise trade deficit for March that was released yesterday. Now, I have been saying on this podcast that the March deficit would be a new record high and it would beat the old record that we set in February, in part because February only had 28 days. And so I knew if we had a full month like March with 31 days, we would clearly break the February record. Well, February broke its own record because the original deficit that was reported at 86.7 billion was revised upward to 87.1 billion. But the March number blew that out of the water. That estimate was for 87.5 billion, which would have been a new record. We exceeded that and the deficit in merchandise for March was 90.6 billion dollars. That's one month. This is an all-time record. In fact, it's the first time we've ever had a monthly trade deficit, merchandise trade deficit, with a 90 handle. And you know what? This record is probably going to be broken in April and then broken again in May. In fact, I think before the year is over, we are going to be printing $100 billion monthly trade deficits. And this is especially going to be true if the price of oil continues to rise. Now at $65 a barrel, I think, and I've been saying, there is a very good chance that oil hits $100 a barrel before the end of this year. And since America is now back to being a net importer of oil, as the price of oil goes up, that automatically drives up our trade deficit. And so that's going to help power the deficit above $100 billion. Now, the most amazing part about the trade deficit is that nobody reported on it. I mean, nobody even cares, right? This is nothing as far as the financial media is concerned. And in fact, the few media outlets that bother to even mention the trade deficit, they don't even mention it as if it's a bad thing. I mean, they generally put a good spin on it because they say that it reflects our strong economy, right? We have this great economy. It's so strong. Consumers are buying all this stuff. And that's why we have a trade deficit. But it actually evidences the opposite. If we really had a strong economy, 
producers would be making a lot of stuff. We wouldn't need all these imports because our strong economy would produce the stuff that we're consuming. It's because our economy is so weak and is incapable of production that we're so reliant on stronger economies abroad to produce the stuff that we can't. Now, where are Americans getting all this money to buy all this stuff that they can't afford and didn't help produce? Well, they're getting it from the Fed. The Fed is printing up this money and mailing out these stimulus checks or unemployment benefits. And then people are taking those that money and they're just buying stuff that's coming in from other countries. And you can see that in the trade deficit. The trade deficit is proof that we don't have a strong economy, that we have a bubble economy. In fact, I was just reading this article about how there's a problem now with the container ships because they're stacking these containers so high on these ships because the demand is so massive that a record number of containers are actually falling off the ships in the middle of the voyage and they're sinking to the bottom of the ocean. And so they're not even arriving at their destination. That's how big this problem is. This is evidence of a massive problem, yet everybody ignores it. Now, yes, this number, the trade deficit, is going to directly subtract from GDP, but there's still a lot of GDP that is generated on top of all these imports because the imports have to be distributed, right? So once the products come into the United States, there is a lot of economic activity in the retailing of those products and the delivery of those products that feeds into the GDP. But you take away the imports and all the rest of it falls apart. Without the underlying products, the rest of it is meaningless and goes away. So this thing is pure bubble. And ultimately, and not too far in the future, the dollar has to collapse because we are flooding the world with dollars. And how long is the world going to keep flooding America with their consumer goods in exchange for their dollars? After all, the rest of the world wants this stuff too. Why put it on ships and send it to America in exchange for dollars that are going to collapse? So this shopping spree is going to come to an end. And the other interesting thing, too, about this trade deficit is it came out the morning of the Fed's decision not to raise interest rates, which surprised nobody. But of course, Powell had his press conference, and I'm going to get into that press conference later in the podcast. But I wanted to mention it briefly because one interesting aspect is despite this release of an all-time record high trade deficit, a massive imbalance that indicates severe structural problems underlying the U.S. economy. We get this horrific number, and Jerome Powell is fielding questions from reporters, and not a single reporter asked Powell about the trade deficit. And if he's concerned that this record trade deficit, what it might mean for the dollar, what it might mean for inflation. Not even a question. Nobody gives a damn about this elephant in the room. But what everybody does care about is the GDP numbers that came out early this morning. This is the first look at Q1 GDP. And everybody was looking for a blowout quarter. 6.5% was the consensus. Although there were some whisper numbers that we might get a seven handle on the GDP growth. We didn't get that. In fact, we came a hair under the 6.5% that was expected. We got 6.4%. Still a very, very big number. But again, this is not a booming economy. This is money printing. This is inflation uh, masquerading as economic growth because the economy is not what's growing. What's growing is our spending and our debt And that's being picked up by the GDP. But if you look at the personal consumption expenditures, right, this is people just spending money, not businesses investing in plant and equipment, how much personal consumption grew 10.7%. That beat the consensus, which was for 10.5%. So even more of the GDP was the result of personal consumption than had been expected. And of course, Where are the people getting the money to buy all this stuff? It's being printed. It's stimulus money, extended unemployment benefits, PPP loans, 
you name it. The government is providing all this money and people are going out and spending it. And the trade deficit is all part of this. Because if you just strip out the spending on services, the increased spending on goods was better than 11%. I forget the exact percentage. But those are the goods that are coming over on those ships where the containers are falling off the tankers and dropping to the bottom of the ocean. That's all a function of all this spending. But the whole thing reflects a complete phony economy. You know, the economy's not overheating. The economy's not roaring and on fire. I keep hearing analysts and analysts talking about this booming economy, this rip-roaring economy, just looking at the expenditures. You can't look at that. A rip-roaring economy is one that is producing more, where the government has surpluses, not deficits. A strong economy is providing so much revenue to the government because you have so much income being generated by a booming economy. And because the economy is so strong, people don't need government handouts. They don't need unemployment benefits. They don't need welfare. They don't need food stamps because the economy is really strong. So when you have a strong economy, you have shrinking budget deficits, you have shrinking trade deficits, or you have trade surpluses. Strong economies have the opposite of what we have. We have the weakest economy in U.S. history. I don't care that we're spending all this printed money to buy imported products. This is all a sign of how weak the economy is, not how strong it is. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And once upon a time, people did care about these things. I remember the 1987 stock market crash was precipitated by a $17 billion trade deficit in a single month, which was an all-time record high, and it scared the hell out of the markets. The dollar got killed, uh, bonds went down, and that kind of uh, precipitated the stock market crash. We're at $90 billion now. <laughs> that dwarfs that $17 billion, which was a one-off event. I mean, we, you know, they, they were generally coming in at 10, 11, 12 billion. And then we had that, that spike up there. But now, I mean, we're printing deficits far in excess. And of course, again, Donald Trump promised to make America great again by winning on trade. Well, our losses on trade have never been greater in the history of the country than they are right now. Yet as bad as these numbers are, they didn't have any meaningful effect on the dollar or the stock market. Yeah, the dollar's been drifting lower, but it hasn't been getting hit hard. It's just been slowly going down. And I believe that slow decline is going to continue until it accelerates into a more rapid decline and then ultimately into a crash. The question is the timing of that transition. It's really hard to know. But the direction, well, that's clear. What we just don't know is how rapidly we're going to ultimately get to the final destination. I know from experience, when you're running your own business, HR issues can be killers. Wrongful termination lawsuits, discrimination, minimum wage requirements, all sorts of labor regulations can really trip you up. And HR manager salaries ain't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. 
That's where Bambi comes in. B-A-M-B-E-E was created specifically for small business owners like me and you. You can get a dedicated HR manager that will craft specific HR policy that meets the individual needs of your organization and they will maintain your compliance and do it all for just $99 a month. And with Bambi, you can change your HR from being your biggest liability to one of your biggest strengths. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat for anything from onboarding to terminations. They will customize your policies to fit your business, and they'll help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. Month to month, no hitting fees, you can cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend your time doing HR compliance. So let Bambi do it for you. And you can get your free HR audit today. So go to Bambi.com slash gold right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash gold, spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash gold. And now I want to get to the press conference from Jerome Powell yesterday afternoon. And probably the most significant part of the uh, Q&A was the way Powell handled the multiple questions on inflation. I mean, that was the topic on everybody's mind because it's so obvious that it's a problem because everybody can open their eyes and see what's happening to prices. And Powell gave an answer that, again, I believe is the most dovish statement he's made yet. And again, as I've been saying, Powell is going to get increasingly more dovish with each and every press conference, which is why it doesn't make any sense that traders are reacting the way they are to the increase in commodity prices. It doesn't make any sense, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, that traders are selling gold because they think the Fed is going to raise rates to fight inflation when Powell is saying there is no way we're going to do that. Now, maybe the markets just don't believe Powell. Maybe they they think Powell is going to raise rates to fight inflation, even though he is saying they're not going to do that. And from my experience, the Fed does what it says it's going to do. I mean, the Fed is not going to surprise the markets. The Fed always wants to be upfront with the markets and and tell them well in advance to give them a chance to adjust and prepare for whatever the Fed is going to do because the Fed is very cognizant of how its policies and its statements affect the market. So the Fed is not going to tell the market, don't worry, we're not going to hike rates and then pull the rug out from under the market. That's not what the Fed is going to do. But when he was asked about what the Fed was going to do and the, the increase in commodity prices, not only did Powell reassure the reporter and everybody obviously listening to his answer that the Fed was not going to raise rates in 2021, regardless of what happens to commodity prices, because the way Powell explained it, if prices just move up, even if they move up a lot, but then they stabilize at a higher level, he's not concerned about that. He is concerned about prices that go up consistently year after year after year. So if we just have a big increase in prices in 2021, which Powell defines as being transitory, then the Fed's not going to care about that. They're just worried about protracted inflation. They're worried about persistent inflation that continues year after year. Now, he didn't say if we have a huge increase in consumer prices in 2021 that he expects to see that increase reversed in 2022. No, it's like whatever happens this year, it doesn't matter, right? It's a throwaway year for the Fed, right? The kitchen sink. Even if we have 10% CPI inflation in 2021, the Fed's not going to care about it. The Fed is not going to react to what it has already decided is transitory because that's what the Fed has concluded. And it doesn't matter what happens. Lumber prices can be up quadruple. They can quintuple. All prices can keep going up and the Fed is going to say, we don't have to worry about this because it is transitory. So Powell was telling the markets, it doesn't matter. 
Doesn't matter what the price of oil is. You can go to $100 a barrel. Doesn't matter what happens to copper. Doesn't matter what happens to wheat. Doesn't matter what actually happens to consumer prices. I don't care how many companies have already pre-announced big increases in consumer prices. All this stuff is transitory and none of it matters. And we are not going to react to a transitory increase in prices, even one that isn't ultimately reversed in subsequent years. So in other words, if prices just ratchet higher by 10 or 20% and then go up 2% a year from there, the Fed is fine with that. So we can have a huge increase in the cost of living that may be permanent as long as the permanent increase is just followed by 2% a year increases, the Fed doesn't have a problem with that. Well, Americans should have a big problem with that because that means a big increase in their cost of living and a big decrease in their standard living. But it actually gets more scary because if we get a big increase in consumer prices this year, let's say it's 5% or 10% or whatever it is, the odds that we're just going to go back to 2% a year in 2022, 2023 are insignificantly small. I think that whatever the inflation rate in 2021 is, however high it is, it's actually going to be even higher in 2022 and higher again in 2023. So at what point along the way will the Fed be forced to admit that their initial assessment was incorrect, that inflation wasn't transitory, that it was a permanent increase, and now they've got to do something about it. But the problem is they waited so long They are so far behind the curve. If the Fed waits for the official inflation rate, let's say to be 10% for a couple of years before it realizes, oh, I guess we were wrong. It wasn't transitory. Yet they still have interest rates at zero. What is the odds that the first rate hike is going to be from zero to 12% or 15%? Are they going to do that? I mean, the Fed generally moves interest rates by a quarter point, a half a point. They've never moved interest rates by a thousand basis points at one time, go from zero to 10%. But that's what they would have to do. You can't wait for inflation to be 10% and then say, okay, we're going to notch rates up from zero to 50 basis points and expect that to do anything. It's like spitting in the ocean. You're not going to accomplish anything with that tiny rate hike with such a high rate of inflation. So if the Fed really is going to wait so long before it declares an increase in inflation to be permanent, and not transitory, well, it's too late to do anything about it. The only hope that you have of containing inflation is getting out in front of it. But Powell has said, we're not going to do that because we don't want to risk getting in front of an inflation problem that doesn't exist. We'd rather wait until we have an inflation problem for sure and then try to do something about it. But by the time you try to do something about an inflation problem that already exists, Well, it's far too late to solve it, especially in an economy as highly leveraged as the one we got right now, which is why eventually the markets are going to have to realize that inflation is going to run out of control. And that's the beginning of the end. I thought it was also interesting. Powell was asked about the U.S. dollar status as the world's reserve currency. And so he offered an explanation as to why the U.S. dollar was the reserve currency. And it was completely wrong. I mean, I forget exactly what he said, but I remember it had absolutely nothing to do with the reason because the dollar didn't just achieve reserve currency status. You have to go back to the beginning of Bretton Woods. And the reason the dollar became the world's reserve currency was A, the dollar itself was defined as a measure of gold. That's what it was. Just like what is a a foot? A foot is 12 inches, right? We've decided that a a foot is 12 inches. So a foot is a measure of a quantity of inches. Well, the dollar was a measure of a weight of gold. There were a certain number of grains of gold in a dollar, and you had to have that many grains in order to be a dollar. Just like if I make a ruler and I only put 11 inches in the ruler, it's not a foot, right? Well, if you don't put the right number of grains in a, a coin, that's $20 gold piece. If you don't have enough grains of gold in there, then it's not legally $20. So the fact that the dollar was gold, that was an important part of its being accepted as the reserve currency. And you could always turn in your paper Federal Reserve notes to get your actual gold dollars. Uh, The Federal Reserve notes were redeemable 
to the bearer on demand in actual gold, real money. The other reason that the dollar became the reserve currency was because America at that time was the world's richest creditor nation. America had the largest trade surpluses in manufactured goods. America was flooding the world with low-cost, high-quality manufactured goods. Everybody wanted to buy what America produced, and they needed dollars to do it. So it made sense that the world's wealthiest creditor with the largest trade surpluses and the biggest gold reserves would issue uh, the reserve currency. If you look at America today, we are the mirror image of what we were back then. We've gone from biggest creditor to biggest debtor. We've come from massive trade surpluses to massive trade deficits, and the dollar's backed by nothing. It's just a piece of paper. So the only reason that the dollar is still the reserve currency is by default. It's, it's, it's through tradition. I mean, you can argue maybe it has to do with our military might or some other things like that or the petrodollar, uh, but it's just the world is so used to dealing in dollars. The dollar has been the reserve currency for so long that it just continues to occupy that role by default. And also because no other currencies seem up to the task of replacing the dollar, so the dollar kind of wins as the least ugly currency uh, in the beauty contest. But what no one understands is you don't have to date any of these fiat currencies when you can marry gold. And ultimately, that is what is going to happen. But really, based on Powell's statements about how much inflation the Fed is going to tolerate and that it really doesn't matter what happens to prices because any increases are simply going to be dismissed as being transitory no matter how high they are, the market should have just tanked as far as the dollar is concerned. Gold should have gone ballistic on that if people take the Fed at its word. I mean, it's amazing how many people don't believe the Fed is actually going to do what it claims that it's going to do. And of course, what the Fed also doesn't do is it doesn't set up a time frame. How long, right? How many months will these really hot inflation numbers have to repeat before the Fed says it's not transitory? Is it six months? Is it a year? Is it a year and a half? Is it two years? How long does high inflation have to persist before the Fed is concerned? And also, how high above 2% does it have to get and how long does it have to stay there? 3%, 3.5%, 4%? The Fed is not saying. And I don't think the Fed ever will say because it doesn't want to actually establish a goalpost that it knows it's going to have to move every time we hit it. Because if the Fed says, yes, this is the level, 3% is the level, if it gets up there, or 4%, or if it stays there for six months, it's going to get there, and now the Fed can't do anything. So why establish a line in the sand and say, hey, we're not going to cross this line when you know you're going to cross it? Because the alternative is to crash the economy, crash the stock market, force the government to uh, cut back on spending. I mean, you're, they're never going to do that, but they don't want to admit that. So they can never be specific about what they're going to do. And they just leave the markets guessing. Well, for now, the markets are guessing that the Fed is going to do something. I think they're guessing wrong because they're underestimating the size of this bubble and what would actually happen to that bubble if the Fed tried to put this inflation genie back in the bottle. But I want to talk more now about Biden's State of the Union address that he delivered last night. And again, for some reason, they're not calling them the State of the Union address when it's the first time as a president that you're addressing uh, Congress. So next year, they'll call it the State of the Union address. For this year, I don't know, they just called it a speech, whatever it was. Uh, but the one thing it was not was an honest assessment of the State of the Union. In fact, President Biden spent the early part of the speech, giving himself credit for all the people that now have got vaccines and for all the people who are coming back to work. He's bragging about the fact that more new jobs have been created uh, in the first hundred days of his presidency 
than in any president in the past. Well, of course, these are not jobs being created. These are jobs that were temporarily eliminated, being restored to try to claim credit for jobs being created when the only thing that's happening is people who were temporarily laid off before you became president were now allowed to return to the job now that you are president to somehow say this is some monumental achievement on his part is so ridiculous. But of course, nobody wants to call him out on that. Although when I'm speaking about ridiculous, probably of all the ridiculous aspects of last night's speech, the most ridiculous one was before Biden even opened his mouth. And that was watching him come into Congress. It's a huge building, right? Congress. And it's almost empty, right? They are social distancing everybody. Each guy's got like an entire row to his or herself, right? So there's barely anybody in this room and they're really spread out. And remember, these are our congressmen, our senators and representatives, vice president of the United States. You know, every one of these guys and gals are vaccinated. They were probably the first people to get the vaccines, right? Before it was even available to the public, they probably shipped a special batch over to Washington and in whatever the medical facility they have, they probably immunized all of these people in Congress. So you have all these people who are immunized against COVID, who are in rooms where they're really, really spaced out. There's hardly anybody in this massive room with extremely high ceilings, right? And every single person is wearing a mask. How ridiculous is that? What is the point of having the vaccines if you still have to wear a mask? I mean, this is all for theater. Uh, the fact that, in fact, I was surprised that Joe Biden actually removed his mask to give his speech. I was expecting him to give the speech through his mask. But no, he did actually, he wore the mask up until he got to the podium. And then as he was standing there, before he started to read the remarks from the teleprompter, he peeled off his mask. So that was the the most ridiculous of it all. But of course, it was all downhill from there. The worst part about this address is, you know, Biden is taking credit for all the money that was sent to American families, all the stimulus checks, all the money for food, right? All this cash uh, that, 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 that families got to, to rescue them as if it was his own money, right? I mean, how do you even take credit for giving somebody else's money away? But what he doesn't want to focus on is any money that the government gives to some people, it has to take from other people. In fact, sometimes it takes from the same people it gives to, right? You have to be very careful because the government can give you money, put money in your right pocket, but it's reaching into your left pocket and taking the money out. And a lot of the times what happens is it takes more money out of your left pocket than it actually deposits into your right pocket. And so you're worse off. But the money has to come from the people, the taxpayers, either directly or through inflation. But the government doesn't have anything to give away. So when you're talking about, or Biden is talking about all this money, this huge rescue plan, how the U.S. government rescued the economy, how? The U.S. government doesn't have anything to rescue anybody with. It's the economy that has to rescue itself. And basically what Biden is saying is we took money from some people and gave it to other people, except they didn't take money from anybody because nobody's taxes got raised, which means they took money from everybody because they're taking their purchasing power. That's why consumer prices are soaring. And that's why it's not transitory. It's going to continue because this inflation is real. It's bigger than ever. And it's here to stay. One of the comments that Biden made was that he didn't understand why we couldn't make more products in America. Like, why are so many products made in China? He says, there's no reason for these products to be made in China. We can just make them in America. And that's what this is all going to be about. We're going to spend all this money on infrastructure, yet we're going to buy all the things that we need, all the solar, all the batteries. We're just going to buy the stuff that's made in America, except it's not made in America. And the reason it's not is government. Government is the reason the U.S. economy is so uncompetitive, or one of the main reasons. It's because of excess regulation and excess taxation that businesses don't have the money to make the capital investments. It's because interest rates are so low to prop up bubbles and finance government deficits that we don't have the savings to fund capital investment, that people aren't encouraged to save because they can't earn a decent rate of return on their savings. So when you don't have savings, you don't have capital investment, you don't make stuff. That is the problem. And Biden just doesn't understand those reasons. Now, the other reason, ironically, 
had to do with labor unions, which is something that Biden praised. Biden said that the country was not built by business owners, entrepreneurs, by corporations, right? It was built by the middle class and the middle class was built by the labor unions, according to Joe Biden. So there was no middle class until the labor unions created the middle class. And then that middle class is what made the country rich. Biden has it bass backwards. It was capitalism that created the middle class. In fact, there was no middle class anywhere until America invented it, but it was the freedom of a capitalist system that we had where we had limited government and and maximum freedom. That is what gave birth to the middle class. Now, the middle class did create the labor unions, and it was kind of like Frankenstein creating a monster because the Frankenstein monster ultimately turns on Frankenstein Well, the labor unions turned on their creator because the labor unions helped destroy the middle class because what they did is they made their employers uncompetitive on global markets. And so one of the reasons that all these factory jobs were destroyed was because the unions forced the companies to be uncompetitive. And so that opened up an opportunity for the German companies and the Japanese companies to outcompete the inefficient American companies who were having to deal with these unreasonable demands of the labor unions. And so ultimately, the labor unions destroyed all the companies that they infected. Yet Joe Biden wants to pretend that we owe our success to the labor unions. We would be far more successful had those unions never existed. And it's not an accident that the industries that were the most heavily unionized were the ones that got destroyed. Now, the reason that the government unions are still there is because they're not subject to market forces. So most of the people who are unionized now are government workers, right? Because they don't have to be efficient. They're not subject to competitive forces and you can't fire these people. So you have these huge public sector unions. And, you know, even Franklin Delano Roosevelt was against those. I mean, they should be outlawed. Nobody should be allowed to put a gun to the head of the taxpayer when you've got a government job. And of course, the unions actually negotiate with themselves because the politicians are afraid not to give the unions what they want because the unions can vote and the unions can get out the vote. So these type of labor unions should be illegal. I'm not opposed to private sector unions, but what I am opposed to is the government conferring special privileges to these unions to allow them to extort and harass their employers, right? Which is what we've done. I'm fine with people unionizing, but you also have to be fine with employers. Say, look, you know, we can fire people if you want to go on strike. You're going to get fired. We're going to replace you with other workers. And the labor union shouldn't have any ability to interfere uh, with that process. Biden also talked about American education. You know, he talked about how we have the best educated nation in the world because we send kids through high school and we have all these kids in college and we've got the, the, the most educated nation. We don't have the most educated. Maybe our kids spend the most number of years in school, but it's a complete waste of time and money. That's the problem. And now Biden wants to waste even more time and even more money because he wants to make sure that the government pays for a couple of years of preschool and a couple of years of college. All that's for free. I touched on, I think in the last podcast, how that is going to make the problem of excess spending on education that we already have It's going to make that problem much, much worse. So I don't want to talk about it again on this podcast. Biden also talked about how he wants to bring down health care costs, health insurance costs, prescription drug costs. Of course, Biden doesn't want to accept responsibility or even admit that the reason health care, the reason health insurance, the reason prescription drugs are so expensive is because of government. It's government regulation that drives up costs. It's government subsidies. All of this stuff is the reason that healthcare is so expensive, that prescription drugs are so expensive. So the only way to actually bring those costs down is to get government out and bring free market forces in. But that's not what Biden wants. Biden wants to interject more government into the process. And so everything that Joe Biden wants to do to control healthcare costs will backfire and make healthcare even more expensive than it is right now. Now, while he did spend a lot of time talking about all the money the government was going to spend, he didn't devote that much time to paying for it. He did talk a little bit about higher taxes 
on, on corporations and thinking that this is somehow going to make the country richer if we can tax these corporations and then invest the money in human infrastructure or whatever it is. But of course, what he doesn't understand or doesn't want to admit is that if we didn't take the money away from the corporations, the corporations would invest the money. The corporations would use it to create jobs, to produce goods, to provide services. So any money that the government takes from corporations is money that otherwise would have been invested in growing the economy, producing goods and services and creating jobs. And instead that money is sent to the government where it's squandered. So the more money the government takes from corporate America, the lower the American standard of living is going to fall. But he also mentioned something about democracies and how we have to be very careful because history uh, shows that democracies don't necessarily endure that they collapse. And he's right. But what Biden doesn't understand, and the irony of it is, the reason that historically democracies do not endure, the reason that they collapse is because they're doing precisely what Biden wants us to do. Democracies go bankrupt because the public votes themselves free stuff. That is the problem. Once the voters realize they can vote themselves free stuff, that is the beginning of the end of a democracy. And democracies collapse out of Bankruptcy, they run out of other people's money. And that's exactly what is going to happen. And in fact, the founding fathers, America's founding fathers, were so familiar with the history of failed democracies and why they collapsed that they established America as a republic and they wrote a constitution specifically to protect us from democracy. The problem is the constitution no longer protects us from democracy because the judges no longer enforce it. But I want to finish up by talking specifically about two of the programs that Biden announced, because I got to see some more details on those programs now that I didn't have when I did the last podcast. And that is the paid family and medical leave and the paid childcare. So these are two separate programs. And according to the budget, each one is going to cost $225 billion over 10 years. So somehow they know what these programs are going to cost over a 10-year period. And if you divide it by year, it's $22.5 billion. And I think it's interesting that the price tag to provide paid family and medical leave is exactly the same as the price to provide free childcare. How is that? Obviously, they're not going to cost the exact same amount of money. They have no idea what it's going to cost, right? They're just guessing, right? Because those are the numbers they put there. But as I'm going to explain in a minute, whatever the government thinks these programs are going to cost, you can probably multiply by 10 and get closer to the actual cost, right? I mean, that's par for the course when it comes to government. I mean, the same thing happened with, you know, what they estimated Medicare would cost. The actual cost was well in excess of 10 times what they thought it would cost. And again, it's because of the moral hazard implicit in every government program, as I will get into right now. So rather than costing $450 billion over 10 years, these two programs are likely to cost $4.5 trillion over the next 10 years, right? Ton of money. So the first one is the paid leave. So here's how it goes. Any American who qualifies can get the paid leave, but high income earners, right? If you're making $500,000 a year, a million dollars a year, you're not going to take it because the maximum benefit is $4,000 a month or two thirds of your salary. Now, basically that means that you max out at $60,000. So if you earn $60,000 per year, you'll be able to qualify for the maximum $4,000 a month benefit for 12 weeks. So that's three months of paid leave. If you make more than 60,000, 70,000, 80,000, 90,000, you're going to get capped at that $4,000 a month. So if you're a pretty high earner, you're not necessarily going to take advantage of this because you may have a hard time, uh, you know, making ends meet. If let's say your monthly salary gets reduced from 20,000 a month down to 4,000 a month. But if your monthly salary is $5,000 a month and it gets reduced to $4,000 a month, a lot of people can handle that, especially when you consider the fact 
that going to and from work every day in and of itself costs money. You have to pay your commute costs. You have to pay uh, your dry cleaning costs. Maybe you have to eat out in a restaurant. So there are a lot of other costs. Maybe you need childcare, which you know will relate to the other program, but you can obviously save on your childcare costs for the three months that you're not at work. You can take care of your kids yourself. So I think a lot of people that earn $60,000 a year or less are going to be extremely tempted to take this leave and take the full 12 weeks off. Now, the problem is when the government is trying to calculate how much this is going to cost, they're probably looking at, okay, how many workers are actually going to have these emergencies where they need to take some time off, right? How often are they going to have a newborn child that they have to uh, take care of? Or how often are they going to have a sick husband or wife or child that needs their attention for 12 weeks, right? They're probably thinking that people are actually going to use the program only for the specific purpose that it's designed. But of course, there is no precedent for thinking that's going to happen. If you give an American the opportunity to have a three-month paid vacation, he is going to take advantage of that opportunity. So far more people are going to be having emergencies that require them to stay at home than the government believes. In fact, if you look at how the government is defining it, I think the Biden administration released some information that I was reading it online. So you can qualify for this 12-week vacation to bond with a new child, right? So that means anytime you have a baby or you adopt a baby, right? Well, you can say, hey, I need 12 weeks to bond with my new child. Also, to care for a seriously ill loved one, right? Well, how seriously ill? Does it have to be a physical disease? I mean, a physical ailment? Or what about mentally? What if they're just depressed? I mean, is that seriously ill? Somebody is really depressed? I mean, how easy is it to fake some kind of mental illness, addiction or something uh, so that you can qualify for the 12 weeks off? Look, there's entire cottage industries out there of doctors who write medical marijuana prescriptions. Yep, this guy needs marijuana. Uh, It's for health reasons. Or again, you know, with these emotional support animals, go online, all these doctors, they'll write you a prescription that says you need an emotional support animal in order to get on a plane, right? Everybody is going to be coming up with a fake note that excuses them. If you even need a note here, uh, you can take 12 weeks off if you need to deal with sexual assault. So all somebody has to claim is, yeah, I was sexually assaulted and I need 12 weeks of paid leave to get over the assault. And obviously you're probably not going to have to get into the details of it, right? Just tell your employer, yeah, you know, somebody sexually assaulted me and I just, I I really just kind of take time off. I, 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 you know, I I really have to process all this and, you know, I, I need at least 12 weeks to recover from this sexual assault. Even if somebody is stalking you, you say, hey, somebody's been stalking me and so I need to take 12 weeks off to deal with the emotional stress of the fact that I've been stalked, domestic violence. Obviously, you're probably not going to have to prove this to deal with the death of a loved one. I mean, people die all the time. I mean, your grandparent dies, a friend of the family dies, an uncle dies. I mean, anybody, a friend of yours dies. I mean, how hard would it be to say, yeah, you know, my third cousin twice removed died. And yeah, we were really close. And God, I, I just I just need 12 weeks off to process this. I, you know, this, he, we, were, we were so tight. Everybody's going to say this kind of stuff. So you're going to have so many people, so many more people than the government thinks are going to be lining up for a three-month paid vacation. But the cost of paying for these vacations is just the tip of the iceberg. Because what are the economic costs to American companies of having the workforce just take three months off? I mean, so many workers are just not going to be on the job. What about all the lost output? Forget about what it actually costs to pay these people to take these vacations. But what about the lost economic output of their employers when their workers are not on the job? And what about all the inconvenience for the customers of these companies that are having to shut down for a few months because there's nobody to work? So, I mean, this is going to be a complete disaster. You know, this particular bill, this American Families Plan is going to be the single most expensive bill, probably, and it's going to set a record for fraud. There will be more fraud 
in this bill probably than any other bill that the government has created because the payoffs are so big and the fraud is so easy. In fact, let me move on to the next boondoggle, uh, which is going to be the child care. So based on the details that I've read and what Biden said in his speech, there's going to be a new federal program that is going to cover all of your child care costs if you're a lower or middle income family that exceed 7% of your income for your children that are under five. So basically, 7% is your deductible. You cover the cost of childcare up to 7% of your income, and then the government will pick up the tag for everything above that. And according to the White House, and I read some stuff they put out, Biden is claiming that this is going to save the average family $14,800 a year, which is a big number. And so I did some calculations. Let's say you have a household that earns 80000 a year, which I think is a little bit bigger than the medium. I think medium household income is maybe about 70000 But for the sake of this example, let's say a couple is earning 80000 a year and they're right now spending 20400 on childcare, which is a big chunk, right? That'd be 25% of their income is going to, to childcare. And the government says, no, no, no. The most you have to pay is 7%. So the government is going to pay... 14,800, which is the difference between 5,600, which is 7%, and the 20,400, which they would be paying now in order to save the 14,800 that the Biden administration claims the average family is going to save because of this program. Now, how is the government, in theory, assessing how much this is going to cost? Well, they're probably looking at all of the families now who have kids in some type of daycare, uh, childcare, and they look at what they're spending and they figure, okay, it's going to cost the government the difference between what they're spending now and what we're going to subsidize because, you know, we're only going to make them pay the first 7%. But what they don't understand is the minute the government starts giving away free childcare, a lot more people are going to want it. So for example, take the couple that is making $80,000 a year and is now spending 20400 on childcare. The minute the government caps their annual cost at 5600 and says, hey, once you spend 5600 on childcare, you can buy all the additional childcare you want, and it's all going to be free. Well, obviously, that family is going to be incentivized to buy a lot more childcare when it's free than when they were paying for it. So now they're going to want more hours of care. And so... They're going to spend a lot more than the $20,400 they are spending now. And so the cost of the subsidy is going to be much greater than the $14,800. Now, of course, the child care providers, now that there's this huge increase in demand for child care, because you just made it free, right? The minute you make something free, you can't get enough of it. So now there's going to be soaring demand for child care. So what are the child care providers going to do? Well, they're going to raise their cost of child care. They're going to want more money. Now, are the parents who are buying the child care going to object? Well, no. Why should they object? They're not paying for any of it. Whatever you want to charge me, it's fine because I'm capped at 7% of my income. So whatever you want to charge me is fine because the government's going to pick up the tab. And of course, there also could be a lot of fraud in there. I could imagine situations where you have some collusion between the child care provider and the families who are hiring where some money is being kicked back under the table uh, to really incentivize uh, people to buy child care because you know, they could just recycle some of the, the money back to the payer. So in effect, the parents get the child care for free. And I think that's going to happen because I think a lot of people who are not buying any child care right now because it's too expensive, they're taking care of the kids themselves, or maybe they have relatives doing it for free, right? They're all of a sudden going to buy child care because now it's going to be so cheap, uh, they're going to start consuming child care where they weren't consuming it before. So the government isn't even factoring that in because they're looking at the people who are currently buying child care and saying, we're going to absorb some of those costs. But the minute they start making child care so inexpensive, a lot more people are going to want it relative to the number of people that want it now when they have to pay for it. So the result of this plan right, to subsidize child care is going to be a huge increase in demand for child care and a huge increase in the cost 
of child care. See, the government is now going to do for child care what it's already done for education, right? Why are college tuition so expensive? Because the government subsidizes the loans and gives people money to bid up prices. So the same dynamic is now going to be at play when it comes to childcare. The government is basically a third party payer willing to pick up the cost of childcare. So now the consumer no longer gives a damn how much childcare costs because somebody else is paying for it. The providers now know that their customers couldn't care less how much stuff costs. They'll start competing in other ways. They'll start throwing in all sorts of other things, right? I bet a lot of people now who are hiring people to do childcare, they'll probably start throwing in all sorts of services that are not even related to childcare. I mean, I'll clean your house. I'll do your shopping, right? People are going to start doing a lot of other things that will be included in with the childcare bill because all that stuff doesn't cost the families anything because the government is paying for it. So this is just another example of where the government is going to set up these programs and they're going to cost a fortune way more than is being budgeted. But again, the biggest problem with this is government is not supposed to do this. This is not what government is here for. Government is not here to give us free stuff. Government is simply here to protect our rights. They're not here to steal money from some people and give it to other people. Where is all this money? Where are the trillions and trillions of dollars going to come from to pay for the family and medical leave, to pay for all this childcare. The government doesn't have the money. It has to take it from the people. And it's not just going to take it from the rich because there's not enough rich people and they don't have that much money. They're going to take it from the very people who they're giving it to, but they're going to take it through inflation. They are going to confiscate their purchasing power and then give them some of the crumbs. In the meantime, what people have to do is recognize that this freight trade is headed their way and get out of the way and get into some foreign assets, get into gold and silver, as I stated earlier in the podcast, get out of U.S. dollars, get into foreign stocks, do something, because the government is coming for your purchasing power. They are going to be printing money like never before, and don't expect the Fed to do anything about inflation. The Fed is the primary creator of inflation, and it is egging the government on. It is basically waving a flag, you know, spend whatever money you want, because whatever you need, We'll print it.